We are primarily a subservicer. We have a very small book relative to our entire servicing business. Less interested in MSRs. We focus on you know small portfolios. Our balance sheet is not large, but um, we're interested in the asset as opposed to the MSR. But again, that's not that's a very small piece. It's you know small percentage of our total book. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming the Executive Vice President of Business Development at Senlar, Dave Miller, to the Housing News Podcast. And in this conversation with Dave, we talk about how Senlar has evolved over the decades to become the largest subservicer in the country. And uh, the topic of servicing is incredibly important and interesting in this market. I left this conversation with Dave feeling like I just took a college class on on servicing. And uh, I actually think I could build out a financial model explaining the servicing business after talking to Dave. So I hope you find this conversation helpful and interesting about some of the dynamics that originators and real estate professionals need to understand about the servicing world and what services are doing to be better partners and provide a better experience to homeowners and their origination clients. Hope you enjoy this episode with Dave Miller, EVP of Business Development at Senlar. Well, Dave, I'm I'm excited you're you're able to to join us today. This has um, obviously been a, a a volatile year in the in, in the housing market. A lot happening on the origination side, but also a lot of action in the servicing world over the last two years and. Um, with Senlar being the second largest servicer and largest subservicer, uh, I couldn't think of a better person to talk to about some of the the challenges, opportunities, and innovation happening in the in the servicing world. Um, so thanks for joining us. Sure, no, thanks for having me, Clayton. Appreciate it. And did, did I get did I get those league table numbers correct? I think I was uh, leaning on some inside mortgage finance data there on the the largest subservicer and second largest servicer. Am I am I right on those numbers? Well, uh, largest subservicer. I'm not sure that we're the second largest servicer, but we're probably top five. Okay, got it. But you are doing like close to a, a tr- about close to a trillion in servicing volume, right? Right, right. Um, absolutely, are activity. You know. Activity, and I'm sure you'll want to get into this later, but on the trading side has been large um, and fast over the last year. So our portfolio changes pretty regularly. But yeah, we're, we are just under a trillion, a little bit lower than that now. Yeah. Um, what have been the, what have been the drivers on the, on the trading side? I mean, we definitely, I'd love to get it, like take the conversation towards some of the trends we've seen in the mortgage banking world of IMBs retaining servicing and now releasing servicing. Like what, what are the drivers that you're seeing on the, the trading side? Yeah. We're seeing a lot of activity, Clayton, over the last year. Uh, mortgage bankers, um, had a great opportunity to hold, retain and, and earn on the, uh, the MSRs that they had. Um, but, that has swung, no, no doubt. And um, given the opportunities for those IMBs to trade out their portfolios. And we've seen a, a lot of activity across the industry, but as well in our portfolio. Um, you know, in the past, we've seen um, the IMBs selling for tax purposes, typically around year end. That's a kind of a natural transaction for many, um, but a lot more opportunistic trades in the last year. Interesting. So like when the, the IMBs, you know, were opportunistically held, held on to servicing, was that a, 
is that a positive for the subservicing business? Like, were you working with a lot of those IMBs on the subservicing side or like, how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so we had clients uh, talk specifically about our portfolio, but this would be true of any subservicer. You know, an IMB was originating at record levels over the last year or two. Um, you know, I don't know about today. Rates are pretty ugly at the moment compared to where we were a year ago or even six months ago. But um, growing their portfolio, doing a great job originating volume, um, growing that business and keeping a lot of it, selling it to Fannie and Freddie or Ginny Mae, but retaining the MSRs. So they were ballooning their portfolios um, over the last year. The way we were able to help them is support them on the inbound side as they were originating those loans, uh, providing the capacity for them. And then on the outbound side, as they look at the trades, being able to support them on a timely basis as they would do their execution with whoever the end buyer would be. In some cases, those portfolios would stay with us uh, because the buyer might be a client um, that is current client of Senlar's. In other cases, we were trading them out to uh, another subservicer or direct servicer, depending on who the buyer of that of that transaction was. Interesting. So for the for the not the subservicing book, but for the servicing book, is Senlar ever a, a buyer of these portfolios that they come to market, or like how how is that servicing book built? We're we're not um, Clayton. We are primarily a subservicer. We have a very small book relative to our entire servicing business. Um, less interested in MSRs. Um, we focus on, you know, small portfolios. Our balance sheet is not large, but um, we're interested in the asset as opposed to the MSR. Um, but again, that's not, that's a very small piece. It's, you know, small percentage of our total book. We're, we don't take um, as a business strategy, interest rate risk. That really is more for the larger buyers, folks that are in the business today, you know, um, you know, the truists and, and PNCs and some of those large buyers in the market, Lakeviews. Um, we don't take interest rate risk. We take operational and performance risk. And that's really the way we're built as a subservicer. So the risk that we take is in performing um, well for our business partners, our clients, in terms of performing all the servicing activities. But those players that do take the interest rate risk, those are Senlar subservicing clients, right? So like you still like get exposure through the, the business opportunity? We do. We do. But if you think about uh, you know, a loan that um, goes to foreclosure, unfortunately, if you own that asset and that loan goes to foreclosure and there's a loss on the property, the owner of the asset takes the loss. Um, if Senlar does what we've been hired to do, which is service well, um, we don't have a credit loss in that transaction. Um, and, no. and, and I mean, one of the funny things about servicing is if you service well, you kind of uh, you stay in the limelight. You're not you're not front and center for the borrower or for for the industry. So I, I'd love to like take this opportunity to learn more about how the Senlar business has been built. And I know uh, you've got a, a a few years of leadership at Senlar under your belt. So we'd love to kind of hear the the evolution of the business from from your vantage point. Interesting, Clayton. I joined Senlar in 1990, and we were a small kind of a local bank that had, you know, half a dozen to 10 branch offices, retail branch offices, and, um, you know, looked at ourselves and said, um, you know, we can't compete with some of the larger banks in the, in the area. We are a company that was a mortgage banker that had acquired a bank, a retail 
franchise um, through an assisted transaction. Um, and we ran that retail franchi- franchise for a number of years. Uh, but as we looked at ourselves and we said, you know, what are we good at? We can't compete with the large banks in the area, uh, but we had a large servicing portfolio at the time. And and at that time, when I joined, we were rough range 125,000 loans. So we had a very large portfolio. Um, so we felt like we were good at servicing and we could leverage that expertise, knowledge, experience that we had to build a subservicing operation. Subservicing was just kind of coming into vogue. There were certainly some subservicers ahead of us. But in 1990, in that period, 95, even through late 90s, um, we started to build our, our servicing book, a subservicing book, rather. Um, we built a subservicing operation. We, we added in, you know, all the kind of key elements to build that, our sales team, our client management team, and went out um, like anyone else that's starting a new business and started, you know, hitting the streets, talking to, you know, banks, IMBs, uh, credit unions and others. And, um, you know, we've just been fortunate. We, you know, um, hit on a number of key kind of what we would call prime clients along the way. Um, we were involved early on in, with a transaction where we partnered with Freddie Mac for a portfolio out of Jacksonville, Florida that had gone down and um, uh, assisted them with that. And, and we were able to demonstrate to the market, to the GSEs, that we could leverage the operational process that we had built, that we had good, strong management talent in place. And we just kind of grew from there, Clayton. We were very careful in selecting the partners that we brought on. We knew that not everyone was a good fit for us. And I don't say that arrogantly, but we focused very heavily on on counterparty risk. So as we looked at our counterparties, um, we felt very strongly about the banks and the credit unions. We could understand those. Um, and as we looked at the independent mortgage bankers, we saw that there were a bunch of them out there that really were good, strong partners. They understood the business. They had a strong management team. They had built a good um, operational process. And we began to partner with them. And from there, the, the business really just kind of um, kind of grew we, because we were able to demonstrate that we could manage that capacity, manage the business process. Did um, the business change at all or, or, or find its footing on proving itself as a, a consistent long-term partner through any of the, the crises that you've operated through? So I'm like thinking, I mean, starting in the 90s, we're still in like the SNL crisis. And then we go to dot-com and the GFC. And like, I'm, I'm interested how like the business may have like changed or evolved as the industry went through like, you know, like just like existential like kind of crisis mode that but we kind of feel like we're in now to an extent. You know, Clayton, it's an interesting question. We, uh, I don't know that I could put years on this. I think COVID has made me forget time frames. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's key time frames, 2008, nine credit crisis and all that. But no, as I think about our subservicing business, we went through a number of kind of uh, changes. You know, there were periods where there was a heavy emphasis on customer experience, customer satisfaction. And, and this even goes back in the earlier 2000s. There were, there, we then changed to a period of very heavy emphasis on the default side of the business. You know, default rates had increased from where they were at that time. So you were stacking up um, default expertise into your operation, at least as a subservicer. And, and that kind of waned. And we went back to, pardon me, the customer experience is really a key. 
Um, and then we got to 2008 and 9, and we're back to default again. And, you know, delinquency rates are increasing. So, you know, from that perspective, there have been changes in the way we as owners of MSRs and or, uh, you know, asset, you know, balances on our uh, loans on our balance sheet have approached kind of the business. I don't mean to say that anyone has ever lost attention on the customer experience, nor on the default side, just there were clear periods of very heavy focus on, you know, one or the other as as things have changed. You know, we're now to a period as we've passed through 2008 and 9, you know, credit um, risk was managed much more closely. We come into a period of um, COVID, which started in early 2020, and the industry has changed again um, in a very fast way um, to be able to react and assist customers that were, you know, challenged that through that period. Um, so. Interesting. I, I, you know, I re- rewind a, a decade here and even housing wire used to host an event called REO expo with a big focus on the, uh, big focus on the non-performing and default servicing side. How do you mean, and I, and I assuming Sendlar still like has a, you know, a d- default capability and you have like your performing business line, your non-performing business line. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, sometimes I think we only have non-performing because <laughs> That's they're the, the noise. folks in the line. They're yeah. the folks that are in the limelight. No, yeah. it's uh, yeah, we we do we do both default and non-default, of course. And, and even in like the healthiest market, there's still uh, there there's still default. So how how do you manage the balance between like where you put resources and um and you know the, being prepared to to scale up on the NPL side if if the market warrants? I think we've always focus very heavily on the default side of the business in terms of bringing in the talent at the management level and beyond. Um, knowing that uh, if you get behind on the default side, it's going to happen very quickly and you're going to be in trouble. So we've always tried to keep capacity. Um, but I would tell you that not only Senlar, the entire industry was challenged once COVID did hit. We found ourselves doing a lot of things that um, – um, we're really, we're very different. Regulatory changes were happening. It's seemingly every day with very short implementation timeframes. Um, processes that we had in place, and I'm talking about Senlar as well as the industry. I would think others would agree with this, became strained just because of the pure volume of activity. I remember um, one uh, Sunday morning in March of 2020, late March, um, talking to our um, at that time, Chief Operating Officer Rob Lux, he's now our co-CEO, um, and saying, Rob, we have a problem Monday when we come into the office. And Rob said, what do you mean? And I said, well, turn on the TV. Every news station is saying, call your mortgage company and tell them you don't have to make your payments anymore because that's what the news station said. And Rob said, you're right. We need to do something about it. So we actually spent, starting that Sunday morning, um, kind of strategizing on how we would deal with this impending barrage of, of phone calls that we expected from customers. Um, we pulled together a team of our technology folks and we started building out a technology solution, knowing that we couldn't possibly deal with that call volume. It was just going to overwhelm us. So we quickly built out a, um, a tool, um, a customer facing tool where the customer could come in. We could educate them on what a forbearance was and wasn't, what a deferral was and wasn't. You know, it doesn't mean that I don't have to make payments ever again. 
It means that we can defer for a period of time and, and really providing some educational tools and opportunities and allowing them to register, um, you know, their hardships and begin ser- the servicing process. I don't want to tell you that we weren't overwhelmed. We absolutely were, um, as, as everyone else was, but that technology really began, um, kind of the beginning, the, the process for us of changing our default operation, migrating to a technology-based tool that educated the customer, that allowed them to do more, have more interaction, both online as well as with our call center agents. Um, we continued to build that out. And as the days and weeks went on, you know, we were awaiting at one period um, some direction from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, for example, on what a forbearance was and wasn't. Um, CARES Act was passed. But Fannie and Freddie were still putting together the plans. The states then um, started putting their plans together, and they weren't all the same. So we had to build out a um, um, an operational process that we kind of built a matrix that said in California, um, a conventional you know CARES loan would be serviced this way, and if it was in uh, Pennsylvania, it gets serviced maybe a little bit differently, and an asset loan didn't fall under CARES, so therefore we had to build yet another process. So we refined that technology as time went on, as COVID continued, and customers had um, extended choices, or more importantly to them, more extended hardships. So again, constantly training, uh, uh, educating rather, keeping in touch with the customers on a regular basis. So we spent a lot of time building out technology and focusing on the, the connection, the, the touch with the customer. The forbearance was a unique time period where homeowners, I, I think, felt like the, that it was acceptable and they had the, the, the time and desire to request forbearance and to kind of protect their finan- home financial situation. We know the bar was low for applying for forbearance, but like the proactive nature was kind of like a, uh, an accepted practice. But in traditional default, whether it's uh, job loss or, or disease or the other like traditional d- default causes, um, isn't there more of a propensity for a borrower, a homeowner to kind of put their head in the sand and like avoid the the tough conversation with their servicer? Or, or do they, do you still see proactive measures about like traditional default folks coming to the website and using the, the digital user experience to learn about their options or at least prompt a conversation with their servicer. Yeah, I think Clayton, there's, there's a couple different kinds of defaults that, that I think about that we think about. There's the customer who truly has suffered a hardship. Um, they very quickly come to you and say, they raise their hand and say, I need assistance. I've lost my job. You know, there's been a, an illness or a death in the family, divorce, whatever the reason may be. And they're very willing and open to talk about their financial hardship, and they truly are looking for assistance. Um, the second is the strategic default, or the strategic, uh, I don't want to call it, uh, default, but the request for forbearance on a strategic basis. Those customers who use that opportunity to say, I'm going to file for forbearance and, and in case my job is impacted, in case I have a hardship. And then the third is, and, and this is really the tough one, those customers that are bashful about it, I guess I'll use the word bashful, um, it's hard to have a conversation about um, 
something that is a hardship. It, you know, it's one thing to talk about, you know, a death of a person or a divorce, but, you know, loss of a job, that also is really a hard conversation. And we find folks sometimes unwilling to talk about that. And we try to put ourselves out there as a trusted advisor. We're not looking to take your property. We're looking to assist you. We're looking to provide options, alternatives, um, and things for you to think about and consider. And if you're willing to share your financials with us, um, the, the reasons for the hardship, the, you know, what your re- income levels are and opportunities are, we can help you to, to kind of build a, a program that'll best fit that, um, fit that package so that we can keep you in the home. Last thing we want to do is take you out of the property. Yeah. So much emphasis in the industry gets put on borrower experience at, at time of origination. But ultimately, the servicer is the one with a up to 30-year relationship with, with that borrower. How, how, do you, how do you feel about like – I mean, and most homeowners don't even know what mortgage servicing is, even once they're, <laughs> once they're making payments and have a, have a relationship with the servicer. Um, it's, a, you know, it's not a terminology they teach you in, um, in elementary school or high school. Maybe one day if we get some personal finance education out there. But like, how should servicers think about homeowner and borrower experience given the knowledge that, hey, this is a up to 30-year relationship? Um, average, probably more like 7 to 10, but hey, up to 30. Yep. It really starts with kind of the orientation when a loan comes from the origination side to the servicing side. Um, a good welcome package that includes information about their loan, whether it's um, insurance or tax information or when your first payment is due, all the way through to understanding and you know when an escrow analysis will happen and what is an escrow analysis, right? Which is another complex topic for someone that's not really in our business. And when we're going to send you a year-end statement, what does that mean? So, I mean, you're right. You think about the the folks coming out of college, taking their first mortgage. They haven't gone through a class in school that teaches them about a mortgage and the mortgage process. Um, so a strong welcome package is really important. And, and I think we've developed a strong welcome package. In fact, I think a lot of servicers have done that. They under, We all kind of understand that the orientation, the first touch, um, building a relationship, building the relationship of trust is important. And then we all do similar things with our websites and with our mailings. And that is try to put the information out in front of the customer so that when they need assistance, they know where to go. Um, kind of uh, tying back for a moment to, um, unfortunately, hurricane the most recent Hurricane Ian, we find customers calling us saying, I don't even know who my insurance company is. I don't know who my insurance agent is because it was in the drawer and I can't get back to my house. So what do I do? Um, that information is on the website. But to your question, Clayton, they have never visited that part of the website. They've never had a need to do that. So putting that kind of information right out front as an educational um, tool or process so that they know how to use um, some of the tools and options that we've given them. And it really is, you know, I just go back to it's all about establishing a relationship early on and communicating on a regular basis with them. A strong partner in enterprise loan quality ensures lender and consumer protection during a market shift. 
Hi, this is Nicole Booth, Chief Marketing Officer with QC Ally, the official enterprise loan quality partner of Housing Wire News with today's Power of Partnerships Minute. We've all heard about a potential increase in fraud, loan default, and repurchase. A market shift presents an opportunity for lenders to review internal QC processes, and loan quality assurance checks assist with lower defect rates and minimizes repurchase risks. A partnership between technology with human guidance allows trained QC experts to accurately identify risks, monitor the ever-changing regulatory environment, and engage technology to support efficiency and speed. Partnering with an enterprise loan quality company like QC Ally can improve loan quality and drive change within the organization. Learn more at QCAlly.com. That's today's Power of Partnerships Minute. So that that welcome package is that is that still a, is that physical or is this like moving to a digital experience? Like how do you uh, how do you like train the borrower to interact with the servicer the way they need to? And like the insurance example is a great one of like training the borrower to, to know where the information lies. Um, the answer is yes and yes. Yes, it's paper. Yes, it's digital. Um, so we're all moving away from the paper world. Um, for the reason that we don't want it left in drawer that you can't get back to the property. So we're all, you know, we're all transitioning to the digital side. Um, that, uh, so the welcome package to answer your question, a lot of those, ele- most of those elements are online, but we also do um, supplement that with videos. So there'll be a video about an escrow analysis, about your insurance policy, about your end process. That's something that a customer can get to right online. So even if they're, you know, not able to get back to their home in the case of the, uh, you know, the hurricane or some other disaster. They can go to a family member's house, a hotel, whatever, and still have full access to their to their loan. So the welcome package is key, um, but that information's online and then supplementing it with kind of real life experience, talk through videos that are um, not written in mortgagees the way we kind of think and are trained in the business, but rather um, in a manner that um, is easily understandable by a customer, particularly, you know, when you think about escrow analysis, I mentioned that a minute ago, such a hard concept um, for customers to understand. Why do I have a shortage? Why am I paying an extra $50 a month, at, you know, starting November 1st kind of thing? And what are the elements? Uh, you know, perfect example of a video will absolutely help to educate. And then our reps would come behind that and fill in whatever knowledge gaps there might be. Yeah. I mean, I like personally, even being in the industry, uh, we had an escrow analysis on an investment property last year and um, have had a, a fat insurance supplement for the last 12 months that uh, just reviewing the documentation is honestly super hard to understand. Uh, it is. So it I is. can only imagine um, to kind of the, the, un- the uninitiated, how confusing that is and why there might be additional escrow in the, in the following period, which, um, you know, depending on your financial situation could be a, a major hindrance. Um, so we started the conversation uh, talking about IMBs and retaining servicing and selling servicing. That's another challenge. That has to be another challenge to homeowner experience and like the understanding that their servicer may change over time. And you've invested all this time at Sendlar to, to onboard them and, and teach them about the, the digital tools. And um, one day that servicing might be sold. How, how should 
housing professionals think about better educating homeowners on what they should expect in terms of like who their servicer is? Could that change in over time? Like what, how can the industry better inform borrowers about that, that dynamic? Yeah, that is um, one of the most challenging pieces of the servicing business is loans in flight, right? Because loans are moving, you know, a loan is moving it, or the insurance is the insurance information moving properly and getting um, transferred properly from one servicer to the next. Same thing with taxes. And it's never a good time for certain customers because insurance bills are due next week and we're transferring the loan today kind of thing. Um, you know, you've got escrow analysis to consider. So the notification process is really important. Um, putting that out to the customer, supplementing that again with some online, um, information. You know, the first question you're going to, you're going to ask yourself perhaps is, pardon me, is, um, well, geez, is this even legitimate or is this fraud? Because I'm getting a notice from someone else to say, make your payments here. So I think the industry has done a good job trying to define timelines and requirements in terms of, you know, if the loan is leaving me and going to you, Clayton, as a business, um, you know, I need to send a goodbye letter. So I'm providing you with uh, the customer with Clayton's contact information. You're going to be contacted by Clayton, um, you know, in the future with uh, key information on how to make your mortgage payment, what's happening in the transfer what the timing looks like. And then you're going to follow that up with a similar letter saying, dear customer, your, your loan has been transferred. Here's what you need to do. I think the industry has done a really good job in terms of communicating to the customer. Um, but where we all struggle is just all of the following information. As I said, just that tax information and insurance information. And if a loan is in default, transferring, you know, if it's in foreclosure, for example, transferring to a new attorney to pick it up, pick up the activity and service levels. And and that's where it gets rough for a customer who's not, who hasn't experienced that in the past. And that's where, you know, in the industry, you know, we're, we need to define even the data elements that are being transferred. And have we done a good job as an acquirer um, defining those data points and transitioning them to our new servicing system. Um, and that's where you typically will see errors occurring. That's interesting. Okay. So lo- loans in flight. I didn't know that was the, the, the term, but that's a, uh, that's good knowledge there. So as, as we think about the market we're originating in and servicing in today, this kind of rapidly rising rate environment, how do rate dynamics impact the the servicing space as you as you think about um, the lo- loans in flight, or as you think about uh, portfolios being sold, or as you think about refi dynamics that might come down the road in in two or three years? Like, uh, how do you operate diff- in different rate environments? Um, so, if you first start with the uh, interest rate going down, because that was the beginning of, I guess, the cycle that we're in now. A um, lot of impacts across the servicing side of the business. Um, clearly, there are on the origination side, but talk about servicing. Um, you know, your loan volume is maybe doubling, tripling, quadrupling in a relatively short period of time. And when I say short period of time, I just use, and, and, and this is the up, but, you know, we look at the interest rate today, well over 7%. We were down in the 2 3% range just a very short time ago. So, that creates um, capacity issues for servicers to think about and be prepared for, both on the up and the downside. But 
again, staying with the uh, interest rate decrease, um, our volumes are increasing, which means we need to be able to capacitize those pretty quickly and um, bring those loans into our servicing organization. That drives more phone calls. Um, again, I'll use that term loans in flight, but a new loan coming to us in many ways is like a bulk transfer. New customer, new experience. They need to know where to make their payment, how to make that payment, who to talk to. Um, so calls are coming into the servicing operation call center. So you've got to prepare the capacity and the, uh, and the call center reps for that. Um, loan payoffs slow down, or I'm sorry, increase. Um, because you know the high rate loans are paying off, so you've got an impact to your um, to your loan payoff department. Um, taxes and insurance, you know that you've uh, start with insurance really. Um, you know you've got to transfer um, uh, or you've got to establish rather the the insurance information, the agent, the payee. That's all coming in as part of that new loan package. So assuring that you've got a really tight QC process on the inbound new loan process. For us, it's a bit unique because if we were a single servicer that supported a, you know, one single bank, you can build a process and that's, you know, much simpler than if you're a subservicer with many clients, you're bringing loans in um, that are being originated by many, maybe not even your client, but they may have a broker or coming in on a wholesale basis. Um, so you've got impacts really that ripple the, through the entire servicing operation. So, so the low rate environment. So while the low rate environment is a uh, was a very like high production, it was a good environment for originators. It's a challenging environment for servicers because you're having to handle the refi volume and add the add the headcount and capacity to to manage that refi volume while you're not actually really earning any like more revenue on, on managing that, that those refis, right? That's right. That's right. It's a, it's a, it really, I think you hit it right on Clayton, you know, on the origination side. I mean, I don't want to say it's easy for them because they have had to, uh, they've had to staff up and be able to manage that volume as well. But certainly on the servicing side, um, there are clear impacts to us um, just across the entire organization. Um, The one area that, um, you know, it, it, or the group of areas that aren't as much affected are the default areas, right? You're bringing in new loans, they're performing loans. So um, they're not being as impacted in a similar way to the call center and to our new loans team and, you know, our transfer operations team and others. Um, and then on the other side of that, if you were to take the, uh, you know, where we are today, where we're living today, um, you know, loans aren't paying off anymore as quickly as they were. Um, so you have kind of a reduction in, in, you know, need for capacity, a reduction certainly in the volume activity levels that are flowing through there. Um, your new loans have decreased, you know, again, from a 3% interest rate market to a 7%. You know, I'm talking to our partners, our clients, um, and they're telling me, you know, originations this year, next year are off 50%, 60%, right? So, significantly um, decreased activity levels on the new loans team. Call center is down um, activity levels. So it's, you know, you've got to manage it um, closely. Um, The harder side is I think the upside when you have that decrease in rates, because you need to acquire people pretty quickly. You need to train them and prepare them for your, 
you know, with your business process. So if I was building a financial model for a subservicing business, I would look at this market as one with lower portfolio churn because there's no refi, but probably slower portfolio growth because origination volume is down. But the expense profile looks great because the call center is not as active because there's not as much refi business. So you you kind of look at a, a rapidly rising rate environment of the 7% market rim right now as a um, a steadier high margin market to operate a subservicing business in. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's really fascinating. So how do you, how do you position the business? Like with volume being down, like where do you, where do you hunt for growth? Like how, what are the, what are the growth drivers that, that matter to you? So maybe the first thing I'll start with is as a subservicer, we don't control the volume. We're totally dependent on, our clients who are driving that business. So it's starting with talking to them on a regular basis. And what we do is we go out to our clients and ask them, what do you think your production will be in the next 30 days, 60? We go out six months. If you ask, if you ask an originator, you know, as you get past month three, it gets a bit softer, of course. Um, but at least we understand their projections and we understand how to prepare staff and manage for that. Um, at the same time, as a subservicer, we're looking for new opportunities, whether that's an IMB, a credit union, a bank, or otherwise, uh, you know, even if it's just a, a REIT or anyone that's in the mortgage business, we're having conversations with them about, you know, the way they're servicing their portfolio. Are they servicing in-house? Are they having them serviced by someone else? Are they subserviced? And, um, you know look to uh so our opportunities are bringing in new sales you know new new part new business partners or clients actually do you so when you think about new business partners there's obviously like different levels of digital adoption in in the origination sphere do you find that origination shops have really good like digital um point of sale and like bring their borrowers through a, a digital mortgage process and maybe have a digital remote closing are those borrowers more likely to be kind of self-sufficient um users of your technology once they're once their loan is in servicing i'm kind of trying to figure out if there's like a correlation between like the borrower whose hand is held in a retail branch from start to finish are they the borrower who needs their hand held on the phone in in the servicing relationship or like can, can your origination partners essentially like warm up borrowers to a digital experience once they're in your subservicing portfolio yeah i think probably Everybody in the industry would agree with me that um, the front end of the business is much further ahead technologically and, and digitally oriented than we are on the back end. Um, and, and that's, I think I speak for the entire industry. Um, and, and there are some that have done a better job than others on the servicing side. But yeah, I think it's a different experience for the customer because they've gone through, you know, I, it's funny you talk about the Pizza Hut tracker. Um, but the origination process has been able to look at or, or very easily show you where you fall um, through that process. What is the next step? What's the next activity? And on the servicing side, we're just not as good at that um, yet as an industry. I think some tools are being developed. Um, there's a long way to go, but the customer has a different experience. I would tell you what we're seeing on our side is um, a clear transition to digital adoption um, we still get a lot of phone calls, of course, but, you know, we've put things like mobile sites out there and, 
as I said, educational materials and, and videos and things, we clearly are seeing a much heavier digital adoption than we are today, than we were in the past. We have, um, I guess, about 77% of our portfolio are registered on our digital tools. We're seeing um, about 45, 50% of those using it on a regular basis of those that are registered. Uh, we work real hard to try to increase that. We know that um, we don't work at three in the morning like some business, some other businesses and industries, um, but we know that a customer may need that um, to be serviced at that time. So the more information we can put at their fingertips to allow them to service themselves when and how they want, um, the better experience that is for the end customer. And I believe, did Sendler added a, a new um, chief technology officer recently, correct? We did. Steve Taylor joined us um, earlier this year um, and has done some kind of incredible things for, you know, to help us already just in terms of, you know, digital adoption and kind of tightening down on our cybersecurity and a bunch of other areas. So if, if you think about like business priorities, like how, how important is the technology roadmap and, and how much of a, how much of the roadmap do you think servicers end up building themselves versus leaning on, um, you know, the, the software and solutions partners that are, that are out there dedicated to building software and technology all day long, many of which are, are advertising clients at HousingWire. Yeah. Well, make no mistake. We are not a technology company. We are a servicer, right? Subservicer. So we depend very heavily on those, those partners. Um, you know, we, as you look at opportunities and technology needs, you go through the, uh, the buy versus build conversation with yourself. You go through, pardon me, through the analytics. And, um, I think, you know, we get pretty quickly to, um, we just don't have the expertise to build. So we're going to buy and we're going to use partners, you know, throughout the industry, whether it's a default, uh, vendor partner or if it's a, um, a customer experience vendor partner, um, you know, we're more likely to, to buy versus build. Uh, we think they've spent a lot of time. They understand that part of the business. Um, certainly speed to market's important, uh, particularly as you're working through some of the default activities. Um, so you've got to lean on those partners that are very good at that, at that business, um, to supplement our servicing, servicing process. When you, uh, like, so in your, uh, role le leading business development, is technology an important part of the conversation when you're talking to new IMBs or credit unions or, or REITs about becoming a SendLar client or, or what are like the differentiating factors that help you win business? Well, first it's, um, it's customer experience. Everybody's focused on customer experience. You know, the first thing that goes wrong is, you know, in a servicing shop is if calls are going into loan officers or to the IMB, you know, our clients, executive offices, and there's an unhappy customer. So the customer experience is key and first and foremost on pretty much everyone's mind. Cost is certainly a, a you know, a factor, but, um, the technology is really important. Um, you know, we don't need to be on the bleeding edge. Um, but we want to be kind of at the front of the pack. We have to be creative. We have to be able to support the business. You think about some of the, the large banks that we service and the technology that they're building for their customer experience. We need to be able to support that tie into that um, and integrate in a manner that looks like it's our client doing the business 
And I don't mean in any way by misleading the customer, but rather perpetuating the brand that they've spent so much money building um, and making sure that, you know, they continue to be XYZ Bank's customer. And that XYZ Bank client has the ability to continue to cross sell their products and services. So as we as we look forward to 2023, what should we expect uh, from the servicing world? Is there any any like kind of shifts in business model or technology or like any anything like we should be have our eye on as we look out to 2023? And sorry for asking you to shake the shake the crystal ball, but we're always trying to to know to know what's anticipated as we look around the corner to next year. No, I think good question, Clayton. I think um, you know continuing to build the digital side of the business. That that is clearly a top of everyone's list. Um, improving the customer the customer experience, better integration with our partners. Um, as I said a minute ago, if you can integrate and and perpetuate that brand or continue to deliver that brand, um, that becomes really key. Um, focusing on kind of nailing down the default piece of the business. Um, COVID might be over, but forbearances aren't quite yet. Um, so focusing on preparing for the end of that cycle, because, you know, I think if you look at the MBA and others, everyone is forecasting an increase in, in delinquency rate. So it's preparing your business to be able to handle that volume that has been, um, you know, that has changed over the last couple of years. Uh, but I do think you'll see us spending. We, we continue to invest in technology in a bunch of different areas. Uh, the article that you referred to, or, or actually the foot person that you referred to, our CIO Steve Taylor, recently did an article and kind of hit on a lot of the areas that we're focusing on from a technology side. And I think he was right on. You know, technology is there to support the business, um, but um, and and if we can't do that and satisfy our clients that are small and large who have a varying degree of interests and needs. Um, we have to be nimble. We have to be able to support them. So it will definitely be on the digital side as one of the key areas. Oh, Dave, I can't thank you enough for your your time today. I, I kind of feel like I'm walking out of a, uh, a college class on subservicing. I le- learned a lot from you in this conversation and uh, yeah, feel feel better prepared to, to understand the servicing world after, after asking you a few questions. Good. Well, I uh, have enjoyed talking with you, Clayton, and uh, appreciate the opportunity and look forward to connecting again. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.